You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter seven, and um, our sermon last week from the last part of chapter six of Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth was on the subject of separation. That's a subject that's echoed by the entire body of Scripture. God has high hopes for you. He has the intention to bless you for living a separated lifestyle. It should be no surprise to us that as we do want God's uncommon blessing in our life, we want His special blessing in our life, that our lives should be uncommon and special in a world that is characterized by sin. So we saw last week that we are separated from the unrighteous so that we might love each other. We saw that God has separated us unto himself. So we are to come out, be separate, and touch not the unclean thing. These words should characterize our lives. We must take the step of separation, we must live the separated life, and we must avoid uncleanness, especially the uncleanness of the world, of sinfulness. And that's our part. Aren't you glad that it's not all up to us, though? God has a part in this, too. And last week we finished up with God's part in the work of separation. And it is of these last three points that I would like to especially remind you because they serve as a foundation for the text today. There's promises that God intends to keep in your life. Three of them are are iterated in the last part of chapter 6. Number one, he says, I will receive you. That's a pretty great, great promise, isn't it? Number two, he says, I'll be your father. That, that too, is a pretty substantial and important promise in our lives. And then number three, he commits to us when he, when he mentions the place of brothers and sisters in our lives, he says, I'll give you a family. And the, these are God's promises to you. They are the unchangeable, absolute truth of the Almighty. These are the immutable promises of God. And it's in light of these promises that our text begins today. Let's read beginning with verse 1. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul continues in verse 2, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded 
no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I've said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us, your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I did not repent. I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceived that same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Verse 12, as we get into the home stretch of the text. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceeding, exceedingly the more joy, the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembered the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling he received him. And in conclusion, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does so clearly remind us of our position with you and of the potential that you've put in us. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, leave here encouraged and strengthened. And God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet accepted Christ as their Savior, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would bring them to that point today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in, uh, in retrospect... The first verse of our text fits almost better with last week's sermon than, than uh, as a conclusion thereto than with this week's sermon. Did you all notice that? I mean, um, it seems to be more about the subject of separation than even than Paul's uh, confidence in them. You see that in verse 1. It says, um, 
Having therefore these promises, referring back to the promises that are mentioned in the last part of chapter 6, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The idea here being that we are encouraged to a life of separation. Um, So it does seem to fit almost better with last week's sermon than this one. Um, So what I thought I would do is just re-preach last week's sermon. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. However, it does serve as a clear foundation to the truths that follow in chapter 7. And I'd like to illustrate the connection between verse 1 and verse 16. The first and the last verse of our text this morning. Um, the, the connection, if you'll look at the first verse and the last verse, we begin with this powerful encouragement and challenge to live a clean life, to remove those habits and the behaviors that do not become the gospel of Christ. And, and it's an encouragement to remove the filthiness that comes from the natural tendencies of the flesh. Is that something with which you can all identify? That your natural tendencies, and I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit uh, um, instinct inside of you. I'm talking about the natural tendencies of your flesh tend to be the wrong thing to do. Right? And, uh, and so... Uh, This is an encouragement to remove the filthiness that comes from the natural tendencies of the flesh. It's an encouragement to fear God and to let the Holy Spirit do his perfecting work in our hearts. And then as you compare that with the end of the chapter, we see the expression of confidence that the reader will succeed in all of these things. I think sometimes when we read these verses like verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we, we we see the word perfect and immediately we go, Okay, yeah, well, that's a good goal. It's not like I'm going to reach it, right? <laughs> and you, you see the, the removing all the filthiness of the flesh, and you're like, yeah, well, maybe I'll get some of it. Maybe even most of it at times, but, you know. But when you compare that with the last verse of the text wherein Paul says, I have confidence in you. You're like, oh, are you saying that it's actually possible to live a victorious Christian life? I mean, is that something that, that God has... Uh, actually intended for us and expects of us? Well, it turns out. He has confidence in us. And so Paul expresses to the reader. Um, today, uh, I'd like to point something out. That, you know, I, I always encourage you to have your Bible open, reading along as we, uh, as we preach through the Scripture. But I want to especially encourage you today, because the sermon's a little bit different today. And you'll see as we move a little further into it, but you're going to need to get an eyeball on these verses as we go through them. So just kind of keep your Bible open and keep following along where we are, and I'll try to remind you where we are in the text as we move along. So the entire passage that we've just read is filled with assurances about Paul's feelings about the people in the city of Corinth um, that, that are part of the church. In each expression of love and confidence, Paul explains what it is that inspires these feelings in him about the people in the church at Corinth. And, and from this, we can learn several things that will encourage and strengthen us. We learn a little bit more about the depth of feeling and the sense of investment that God's given to those who are privileged to lead others spiritually. Um, you see a lot of that. You, you, you see a lot of that revealed in this text, Paul's feelings towards the people to whom God has called him to minister. And, and then secondly, we learn 
what aspects of our behavior and what aspects of our lives are signs that we're going to succeed in the end. And this chapter does not really, like I said, lend itself to the normal sermon pattern with which we usually preach the truths of a passage, but this passage tends more to establish some very important related truths and encourage us to drive, uh, and encourage us then to uh, drive a single theme into our hearts. So, if you'll walk with me through the passage, we'll start in verse 2, because we already got verse 1, right? Um, we'll start in verse 2. You can see right away from the first two words in verse 2 that Paul cares what the reader thinks about him. We've talked about this to some extent, right? Paul cares what the reader thinks about him. He says, receive us. You see that? Specifically, he makes this plea for them to receive him, which that just means he wants to be accepted by the people in, in Corinth. He wants to be accepted by the members of the church, right? He wants them to um, accept him without reservation. And specifically, he seems to be defending his integrity. He wants to be accepted for his integrity. He makes three statements to this end. Let's just go through them. He says in verse 2, you see that? He says, we have wronged no man. You see that first statement that Paul makes? As he says, please receive us. Receive us, he says, um, we have wronged no man. And by this, Paul means that he's not unjustly accused anyone. This speaks to the conflict between Paul and some of the people in the church at Corinth. He had rebuked some for specific sinfulness. And, And while the sinners had repented, there was still some soreness from the rebuke. And this concerned Paul. And and in his first statement, he's insisting, reminding them really, that he'd not made any false accusations. You you know that feeling, right? When you've had to tell someone about something that they're doing wrong. Look, if you enjoy that, you've got problems, right? (laughs) If it doesn't bother you deeply... You should just step back and not do it, all right? However, Paul was really concerned about how that went off. He said, I want to remind you, first of all, we didn't wrong anybody. Uh, That wasn't a false accusation. This was absolutely true. The next statement that he makes is, we have corrupted no man. And in this, in the wording that's used, Paul seems to be proclaiming the purity of his doctrine. And he's always making this statement for because accuracy in doctrine is essential in his relationship with those to whom God has called him to minister. It's part of his integrity. He said, I didn't change anything to make you feel better, and I didn't change anything to make you feel bad. I, I just gave you God's word exactly as it was. It may be that a statement made is offensive or hurtful. But Paul wants to be absolutely clear that he has not in any way compromised the truth. I mean, that would be an offense much worse than hurting someone's feelings. And Paul encourages the reader to accept him for his integrity 
with the word. And finally, Paul speaks to his motive in the third statement that he makes in verse 2. Don't worry, we're going to pick up speed as we move along. He says, we have defrauded no man. He says, we've defrauded no man. Here Paul means to impress upon the reader the purity of his motives. I do not picture Paul as one of those televangelists, you know, with the fancy Armani suit, the funny collar and fancy rings on his finger, always begging for money. Uh, That is not the Apostle Paul. (laughs) He has not sought in any way to get rich off of those to whom he ministered. I mean, surely that accusation had been bandied about. It, It always is. But the actual evidence, for those who cared to see it, proved otherwise. Paul had never been in it for the money. And the fact that he worked as a tent maker when he was in the ministry in Corinth kind of proved that point. Let's move into verse 3 now. We're in verse 3, okay? Um, I speak not this to condemn you, he says. In his defense of himself, Paul wanted to be clear that he's not accusing them of believing the contrary about him. You know how sometimes when you are defensive, it can come off as an attack? It's like... (laughs) You're defending yourself, but you're really saying, how dare you think this of me, right? <laughs> right? And so Paul says, I don't mean, I don't mean to come off like that. I, I, he, he's simply communicating to people that he loves the truth about himself. And, and this is important to ministers who actually love the people to whom God has called them. They want their integrity to be known. And Paul communicates this love for the people of Corinth by saying that, he, that they meant the world to him. You see the rest of verse 3, he says, um, You're in our hearts to die and live with you. It's kind of an odd statement, but it's very clear what he's trying to communicate here, right? He says, he, he says that they were in his heart in this life and would be until his death. And as we move now into verse 4, we see this emphasized even further, Paul's affection for the people in the city of Corinth. He begins by saying how confident he is in what he's saying. You see that in verse 4? Great is my boldness of speech. He says, I'm not mincing words here. I don't even have to. I believe this as strongly as can possibly be worded. He states that his conversation is filled with talking about them. He can't stop it. He's comforted by news of them. Even in the midst of great trials, he finds joy in his relationship with them and ministry for them. You see that in the last part of verse 4. He says, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. He says, I have suffered a lot and I am happy to do it. You know, if the feelings of these first few verses had to be summarized, they could be stated in these three words. You are loved. And, and as we look at each of these statements that the Apostle Paul is making, these, each of these proclamations, I, I want you to take them to heart. The reason they're in this letter, the reason they're in this Bible is because this inspired letter is part of the canon of Scripture and God knit it for you. Okay? So you are a member of a local church just like those people who were members of a local church in Corinth. And um, you're not perfect either. And they weren't perfect. They had problems. And, uh, and Paul wanted them to know these things about themselves. So he says, you are loved. Now we are in verse 5. 
And we find Paul recalling how he felt after his first letter to the church in Corinth. Now, in that letter, if you recall, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul had issued the rebuke, which we've already mentioned. And after writing that letter, 1 Corinthians is pretty brutal. 2 Corinthians is a little bit more encouraging, and it's really partly what attracted me to, to go through it this year. 1 Corinthians, oh boy, you might want to you know, wear a couple of pairs of britches. You know what I mean? That's what I used to, I used to do when Mom told me I was going to get a whipping when Dad got home. <laughs> um, it never worked. <laughs> But, you know, it was, it was a thought. It was, it was worth a try. Anyway, I, sorry, I got, I got sidetracked there. I don't know what happened. Um, after, <laughs> in that letter, Paul has issued a rebuke. And after writing that letter, he went into Macedonia. And while there, we can see that Paul is just in great distress. This seemed partly due to the problems in Macedonia and partly due to his worries about the response to his letter. Paul couldn't, like, jump on Facebook and go through all the members of the church in Corinth and stalk them a little bit and see if they were mad at him, see if they were, like, posting things about, you know, random things about apostles. You know? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, <laughs> no, he, he's got, like, no contact here, so he's just, he's he's in distress. He's worried about how his rebuke has come off, and... And he felt troubled on every side. There was fighting and there was turmoil around him, as you see in verse 5. And his greatest battle, though, was in his own heart. He was afraid, fearful, that his letter might be taken wrongly. That the offense might be too great. And that the readers might have turned away or reject him even as their minister. And in the midst of these trials on the outside and, and in the midst of the fears that Paul had on the inside, you see that in, in verse 5? He... I lost my place in my notes here. <laughs> so, um, in the midst of these trials on the outside and the fears that he had on the inside, Paul proclaims in the next verse, in verse 6, that God provided the comfort that he needed when he was cast down. I love the way he characterizes God in verse 6. Do you see that? That's the God we serve. He's the one who comforts people who are cast down. And you see how he mentions that? Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down. And, you know, Paul did take it personally here, and he did he did appreciate God's personal intervention and comfort in his life, but he also recognized this is just what God does. And he knows he can count on God to comfort him when he's cast down. That comfort, in part, came through the arrival of a fellow minister named Titus. Titus came with some good news about them, uh, about the uh, people in Corinth, too. And verse 7 tells us about that. Titus reported that he was greatly consoled by their progress and their growth in Corinth. He reported that the people of Corinth in that church had earnest desire to do the right thing. Imagine being the Apostle Paul, so worried about how his rebuke had come off, and hearing these things about the people in Corinth. I mean, he probably felt like he just started breathing again. He reported, uh, Titus reported to Paul that they were mourning 
over their sin, an evident sorrow for their sin. Most importantly to this point, Titus reported that they were still fervently fond of Paul. Do you see that in verse 7? He says, um, your fervent mind toward me. That's part of Titus's report. See Paul's response to that news in the last clause of verse 7. He went from trials and fear in verse 5 to rejoicing in verse 7. He says, so that I rejoiced the more. What is it that made the difference? He went into Macedonia in trials and with fear in his heart about the people in Corinth. By the end of verse 7, he is happy about the people in Corinth. You know what it was? It was the news that he'd heard about them. They encouraged him with their spiritual growth and their love for him. And, and if the truths of these verses verses 5 through 7, were summarized into three words, they would be, you are encouraging. This is what Paul wants to tell the people in Corinth. This is what God wants you to hear. You are loved, and you are encouraging. Your spiritual success, your spiritual success is an encouragement to your spiritual leadership and and to everyone around you. It makes a difference. It has an impact. As we move now into verse 8, we see something that is of great comfort to me as a pastor and should be to you as ministers for Christ as well. Paul was not absolutely certain of his own methods in ministry. You can tell from verse 8. He says, For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. Right? He's kind of all over the map, isn't he? He says, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. What we see here, Paul was not absolutely certain of his own methods in ministry. He was certain of the truth, and he was certain of what the right thing to do was, but he wasn't sure of... There's always that question, did I do that right? Right? You know, it's one thing, you could just say, oh, that was the truth, don't worry about it. But it's another thing that to make sure you actually did it right, right? You actually delivered the truth in love. And and Paul had some question about his own, his, his uh, he's not absolutely certain about his own methods in ministry. He had done what he thought was the right thing to do, but was somewhat unsure as to whether he had done it in the right way or whether it would ha- have the right impact. He had written a letter that made the readers sad. He had delivered the negative message to the people of Corinth. Something he hated having to do. Well, in in retrospect, Paul says, well, I'm not sorry that I did it, but I was sorry. I did doubt myself and or the success of my rebuke. It bothered Paul so much that he had to say something that was not positive and uplifting to the people in the city of Corinth. And he was torn by the fact that he might offend some people, even though he knew it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't that Paul saw things out of perspective. If you, if you look closely at, at um, verse 8, the very last part of verse 8, he saw that the sorrow to which he had brought them was but for a season. 
that the rebuke would not permanently scar them, but he's still worried about it. It seems to me a sign of a sensitive and a loving minister in the Apostle Paul to carry these concerns that Paul carried regarding the effects of his ministry. Now, now step with me into verse 9 and see how relieved Paul was. And actually, you can see he's practically giddy. He's actually joyful. Paul's ecstatic that God had used his words to bring other family members to sorrow after a godly sort and repent. He was so relieved that his rebuke had not damaged them and that instead it had 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 the exact impact that he had intended. This again is the concern of any loving minister who sees the need to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ for some damaging error in their life, right? It should be done with great reluctance, not eagerly, Much prayer and consideration should be given before entering into any sort of rebuke of a brother or a sister in Christ. And if you find yourself in the position of rebuking people constantly, you're doing something wrong, all right? (laughs) But that's another point. You should have great concern as to the potential damage that you may cause. Let's move on to verse 10 now. And, and you can see Paul's concern there in verse. He says he was so relieved that um, you might receive damage by us in nothing. He says, I just, I just didn't want to hurt the situation. And he was actually concerned about it. This is the apostle was actually concerned about it. Now on to verse 10. Paul recognizes the great value of having been rebuked of being brought to sorrow for one's own sins and repenting as a result of it. This is not the same as when in a worldly context we're told that we're nothing, that our lives are of no value or that we fall short. In a worldly context, that's damaging. Right? When the world tells us that we're not good enough, that we don't meet the world's standards. That that is, that is, that's hurtful. That's not the kind of sorrow that Paul was seeking to engender in those that he loved. In the context of a relationship with Christ, this is entirely different. If we wholly understand the rebuke and allow it to work repentance in us, we're changed for the better. And as a matter of fact, it is this same type of repentance that led us to Jesus for salvation. You can see that reference in verse 10. He says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. This is the kind of thing you don't turn back from. When you recognize uh, yourself to be a sinner, when we come to the, the, we learn from Scripture that our sin has a penalty that we could never pay, and we come to the end of ourselves and repent of our sin, and we turn to Christ. And then he, in turn, welcomes us and saves us. You see that what has just happened is there's been a godly sorrow that's worked repentance unto salvation. You see, it was repentance that led us into a relationship with Christ. And often it is repentance that gets our relationship with Christ back on track and in good health. Has anyone here since you came to know Christ as your Savior, 
stayed on the straight and narrow path perfectly, never slipping off, never needing to repent. No one here? Okay, so I guess you all have been saved for a little more than 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, you, you think about that, there's a, there's a very similar formula to getting right with God to when you got right with Him in the first place. You still confess your sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, to, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and it's not that you're getting saved again. It's just you're getting right with Him. You know, You know, it's... It's similar to uh, when you start a relationship with somebody. Where you, you, you basically, when you start a relationship with someone, you sacrifice other things in your life so that you can spend time with them. Then when that relationship gets on the rocks, it's usually because something wormed its way in between you. You know how you get things right? The same way you started the relationship. Get those things back out of the way. Right? And that's the way... Um, that, that's the way repentance is in our relationship with Christ. Now, in verse 11, we're all the way to verse 11. Woo, we're moving so fast. Paul summarizes the produce of repentance in the lives of the Corinthians. He specifies that their sorrow was of the right kind. It wasn't a, a depression that drug them into a worse condition. It was a remorse that led them into the right way. It wrought a... And verse 11 is really great. Um, just keep your eyeball on that while I, while I uh, kind of summarize it. It wrought a carefulness in their actions. And that's what repentance does. It, it makes us a little more careful so that we don't slip back into the same old ways. It also wrought a sense of being cleared. I mean, what a truth that is, isn't it? When we truly repent of our sin and we step in the right direction, we realize the great weight of sinfulness that we are leaving behind. And we embrace the feeling of having been cleared of that sinful clutter in our lives. And then there's indignation. You see that in verse 11 also, that word indignation? That comes as a result of repentance. Indignation is a sense of having been violated by something not worthy of us. You know, indignation against other people is usually kind of a bad position to be in, right? Because you, you ain't any better than them. But sin, on the other hand, you ought to be a little indignant about it. I mean, how true this is, that, that, that sin is not worthy of us. When we repent of our sins and we step away from them, we remember who we are. We're children of the King. That sort of sinful activity and filthy chains, that's beneath us. And we should be indignant as to our sins. A fear of God, too, is engendered by repentance. And that fear leads us to more wisdom and righteousness in our lives. And as we step out on the right path and begin to make progress, there is born in us a deep and a burning desire to do the right thing and to stay on His path. This is an excitement. The word uh, verse 11 uses is zeal. Then there's the sense of wanting to get back at the devil for having fooled us into staying in sin for so long. Can you identify with this? Yes. The Bible says that vengeance belongs to God. 
But I do not think it is wrong to think that God might inflict vengeance on that wicked old devil through the transformation of my life. And vengeance is a part of it. And it's great to know you are the instrument of God's vengeance on the devil. That's kind of a cool thought, isn't it? All these are fruits of repentance. Finally, Paul observes that the people who were the subject of his rebuke had done the right thing. And he's encouraged and joyful in their progress. Paul sees all of this and, and could summarize his communications on this point with these four words. Your repentance brings joy. It brings joy in your life. It brings joy in the life of your spiritual leaders. It brings joy in the lives of, uh, of, your, uh, of your, uh, the rest of your church family. Re- your repentance brings joy. All right, as we near the end of the chapter and step into verse 10, we see Paul beginning to sum up his feelings for the people of Corinth. And he explains again what drove him to write such a searing rebuke in his first letter. He says that it wasn't just uh, to get at the person or, um, or the persons who'd done wrong, and nor was he motivated by sympathy for the wronged. He was motivated by his own deep care for them. This care for them was something that only God could fully see and understand, Paul seems to indicate here. Um, he says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it. Not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. He just wanted them to get a little peek at at the care that he had for them, to gain a little understanding of this, that he deeply cared for them. In verse 13, we see that Paul reiterates his own comfort at having heard of their progress and growth. And he also brings in Titus as having been deeply impacted by their spiritual welfare as well. And the fact is... These people who lived so far away in the city of Corinth had a whole family of ministers that cared for them. And I imagine, as was Paul's concern, that care was not always evident. And it wasn't always seen by the people of Corinth. But it was present nevertheless. Nowadays, in a world of higher connectivity than ever before with telephones and Facebook and texting and such. We're able to communicate our care a little more efficiently than back then. However, in the flood of communications, there's the, the, the care that your ministers have for you is sometimes missed. Paul means to make this point, and I believe it is an important one for you to hear as well. You are cared for. You are loved, you are encouraging, your repentance brings joy, and you are cared for. And you have no idea how hard it is to end a sentence in a preposition. But let, let's finish this up. Three, three verses, all right? I have in, this, uh, in these preceding verses tried to generalize the application of the text a little bit so that it's about the reader. Because I think that's Paul's intention to communicate to the reader how important and valuable they were to him and to the church and to the Lord. Now, as we enter into these last three verses of our text, it's clear that Paul is making some personal statements about his own love and his own feelings for the people of Corinth. And I think certainly this has some great bearing on the self-esteem of the members. 
but I find it difficult to word the summaries in the exact same way as we have the rest. So we're going to, um, I will, in the position of Paul, make these statements as if they were, as if it was myself. I'm going to switch the outline to the first person in case that bothers anyone. Verse 14. Paul admits to having boasted of them and insists that he's not ashamed for having done so. He says, oh yeah, I bragged about you and I'm not ashamed of it. The fact is, I'm not ashamed of you. He says, remember that, remember that thought because I think it summarizes these two verses. He, he then likens the response that they had to his rebuke to the rebuke itself. Both were the right thing to do. I think sometimes we get a sense of our ministers. Um, maybe not in this church, I don't know, but uh, I think a lot of people get a sense of their ministers as being um, you know, better than us, of living on a higher plane. Now, I mean, it's understandable, and certainly leaders in ministry are held to a higher standard, but... Our every action simply boils down to trying to do the right thing. In Paul's case, his decision to offer rebuke was characterized by truth. And although done with great trepidation, it was just the right thing to do. And then he points out that their reaction was something of which he was very proud. He says, I, I, I felt like I did the right thing, but I want to tell you something. You did the right thing too. He boasted of their courage and their tenacity to do the right thing. He was boasting of them, and and his boasting of them was also characterized by truth. Because their doing the right thing was every bit as admirable as Paul's courage to say the hard thing. He was proud of them. Verse 15 is more of a, a comment in passing about how Titus also loved them and was just as proud of them too. And we could summarize Paul's statements here into five words in verses 14 and 15. I am proud of you. I am proud of you. One more statement. Now We land now on the last verse of our text. And in it really we see the title of the sermon. And I mean to echo the words of the Apostle Paul himself in this that I have confidence in you in all things. I know that you fight a battle every day in your own lives. I know that you make bad decisions and good ones. And that the bad ones sometimes torture and sometimes deceive you. Nevertheless, I am confident in you. And I I know that the Holy Spirit, who's the one who started the work in you, is not one to give up. And I know he's going to finish the job. And I admire you for your tenacity and for your courage to do the right thing. See, I, I know what that's like. Because every day... I, too, am just trying to do the right thing. So often, that's what this Christian life is about. And I think sometimes we just need to hear this kind of stuff, right? Sometimes we just need to hear, I mean, I think that the Holy Spirit had this message for you. You're loved. You're encouraged. Or you're encouraging. Your repentance 
brings joy in people around you. You are cared for. I'm proud of you. And I'm confident that God's going to complete the work that he started in you. Look, if, if you're here today and you say, well, that, that all sounds really good, but I'm not sure I'm actually a part of the family. It's as simple as coming to that place where you recognize you need Jesus as a Savior and taking advantage of his offer of salvation. If you'd like to learn more about that, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation and um, I would challenge you to come forward as we sing. Go ahead and stand. You can turn in your hymn books if you'd like to number 308. The hymn is All to Jesus I Surrender. <laughs>